Today we're going to be studying Shorter Catechism number five and six, which I believe is printed out on your catechism uh, handout. Um, so of course we're delving into the doctrine of the Holy Trinity, okay? And maybe we'll start out with story time. As the world sees things, we have two people. And we've seen a lot of research on this in terms of businesses, hiring, etc. Let's assume these are two males, they are, and which guy's gonna get the job? The tall one, it's a thing, right? It's, it's a thing. The one with hair, okay. That, that, that could be a thing too. Um, but but that's, a, that's a pattern in humanity, that, that we tend to favor the tall, the handsome, the well-spoken, the articulate. Um, well, the story we're gonna tell today, of course, is the story of wee little Athanasius and a gentleman by the name of Arius, who certainly wasn't gentle in his dealing with scripture, but he was very attractive, right? He was taller, he was a good preacher, people loved him, and uh, this comes to be a, a serious dilemma in the church, right? Uh, you know, we talk about the influence of Christianity in the Roman world, and uh, you know, in 312, there's that battle between Oh, was it Maxentius, I believe, and Constantine. Constantine ends up winning the battle at the uh, Milvian Bridge. And so Constantine uh, has some sort of conversion experience right before that battle. Uh, you know, the, the records we have suggest that uh, he saw a, a cross in the heavens or something that said, in this sign, conquer. And he does so accordingly. And so we see that slowly what happens is the Holy Roman, the Roman Empire, um, comes under Constantine's hands, Constantine converts to Christianity, and suddenly Christianity is a most favored religion instead of a, hey, we're gonna get you type of religion. And uh, so fast forward, Constantine, when he has his you know, united empire, he sees there's tension in the church, and there's dissension, and there's division, and there's uncertainty as to who's gonna get the upper leg, and as with all politicians, you don't want division, right? You need to stomp that stuff out. So there is a invitation, and let's be honest, uh, when the emperor invites you to something, it's never really an invitation. Uh, there's an order, show up. We're gonna discuss this issue. We're gonna take care of this for the sake of unity. And so there's a showdown in 325, and of course, this is uh, the Council of Nicaea. Right, uh, and you know, the Council of Nicaea, they, they hammer out a very robust doctrine of the Trinity. They, they're asking, what does scripture teach, right? And so, you know, Arius ends up losing the day in terms of the official position of the church. Athanasius and his, uh, his bishop before he became bishop, a guy named Alexander, they, they stood for Trinitarian Orthodoxy, right? And really stated it very clearly. The big issue, of course, is who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? In Arius's case, Jesus was the first created thing, a really wonderful created thing. Jesus teaches us how to love God the Father better, right? Jesus teaches us how to try harder, essentially, right? Uh, by the way, pretty much anything I'm saying today is like 
we are swimming in the shallow end of the pool here, okay? But because there's so much we could do on unpacking the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, but, you know, uh, Athanasius and the Orthodox win the day, and we have the Nicene Creed, and it's published there for you on your page. But here's a question. This historical battle, this deep digging into the Word of God and unpacking things, um, you know, in, in a lot of language, homoousios, uh, trinity, a lot of unbiblical language that summarizes what the Scripture teaches from good and necessary consequence, really lies over here. This is the team that is saying, hey, can't we all just respect the Bible and love God and get along, right? And Athanasius is the bearer of bad news. His bad news is, no, if we get the person and work of Christ Jesus wrong, there's no point to this religion, right? Who God is matters for us. And that is basically the shtick of Athanasius' argument. So, 325, we have a council, we have a creed, it's awesome. Does that mean it's a settled issue? No. No, I think I could be wrong here. Uh, but Athanasius is exiled five times. He spends 17 years of his life getting kicked out repetitively because he refuses to, you know, assent to the fact that Arius is a good guy. After the Council of Nicaea, there's a lot of murmuring in the crowd. Like, hey, I think Arius got a raw deal, right? Things weren't so good for Arius. That wasn't right. We need to readmit him into the church because he had been excommunicated. Well, uh, in, in one of the other take-homes of the Council of Nicaea was uh, some church discipline related things. And if you've been excommunicated, it needs to be the bishop that excommunicated you that readmits you, right? We need to see that there's fruits of repentance. And of course, the guy that excommunicates uh, Arius is Athanasius. And, uh, you know, for example, during church services, they would interrupt, Imperial Guard would come to a worship service while Athanasius is preaching. And they would say, you know, and Athanasius would tell the congregation, sing the Psalms, and he'd get exiled. He'd get exiled because he refused to reinstate Arius. So just throwing that idea out there, just because something has been argued for well, that doesn't mean it's always done. Every generation, there's going to be the call to stand on the truths of God's word. And you guys know the sort of idiomatic expression related to Athanasius, right? Athanasius contra mundum, right? Athanasius against the world. And for a guy that got kicked out and exiled five times, 17 years sounds like a good deal of suffering for Christ. Uh, now, uh, it ends up, Arius never got reinstated in the church. It's one of those interesting points of history. Uh, the day before he was going to be reinstated, while Athanasius was exiled, uh, he died. And, you know, there's all kinds of interpretations, right? If you're a Jehovah's Witness or an Arius, Arian fan, you're like, Athanasius had him poisoned. Well, it couldn't have been Athanasius. He was a different location. He had a good alibi, like being exiled and all. However, is it possible that some good Trinitarian person bumped somebody off? I don't, uh, we don't know, right? Athanasius' comment was, this is the wrath of God. Um, but, uh, you know, we don't know about that. Barring issues of possible uh, murder, um, Athanasius stands for the right position, okay? 
And the bigger question here is, you know, we sort of looked at a thumbnail sketch of some important uh, church history. And by the way, there's, there's plenty of other people that deal, that are, you know, really heroes in terms of standing for the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. Uh, we could fast forward to, uh, oh, help, Curdeus Homo. Who is that? It wasn't Abelard. Anselm, St. Anselm. Um, th but anyhow, uh, the big question, of course, is, uh, is this something that is cooked up in 325 by a bunch of Eastern Christians? And that's the claim you'll often hear. Well, the Trinity didn't exist until 325, right? Um, now, certainly, uh, there's a lot of language that people might not like, right? You're not going to find the word Trinity in the Bible. Uh, but we stand on that principle of good and necessary consequence. God gave us brains that order things, that we use logic, right? And uh, the, the, the issue is, you know, what does the Scripture say, okay? Um, well, uh, yeah, maybe we'll confess the Nicene Creed later. Let me get into what we need to get into. Uh, so we'll be looking at Shorter Catechism 5 first. Uh, I'll read the question. You guys can answer responsively from your sheet. Let me stop and pray. History session's over. We're going to look at the Word of God. Father, how we thank you that uh, you give us a day, a day of rest, a day of joy and gladness because we realize that Christ our Savior is who he claims to be and that we find rest in him because all of our works that are heaven-worthy have been accomplished in him. All of the satisfaction that we have is through him. And Father, uh, our joy that we have is now ours because of him and the application of that to us by your spirit. We give you thanks. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Shorter Catechism 5. Are there more gods than one? There's but one only, the living and true God. Now, this is uh, quite a statement. Quite a statement. The Bible's clear that there's only one God. And so, you know, the classic uh, expression of monotheism is Deuteronomy 6.4. Jews call this the Shema, right? Shema is here, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And, you know, the, the Jews and the Zoroastrians kind of argue over who gets bragging rights for monotheism. And the answer, of course, it's the Jews, because when you have two gods, it's not one god. So, sorry, Zoroastrians. Um, but this idea that there's one God, you know, God calls Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees, and he calls him out of a world of pagan polytheism to showcase the grace of the one true God. God enters into a relationship with Abraham by covenant, promising to give Abraham a land, a great nation, and to bless all the nations through him. You guys know this, Genesis 12, 1 through 2. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house, and all their gods, uh, to the land that I will show you, and I'll make of you a great nation. And I'll bless you and I'll make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him 
Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abraham took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions and that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abraham passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Now in the New Testament, when we look at the New Testament interpretation of these events, we see that the land that Abraham hopes for is not just Canaan, a chunk of soil in the Middle East, but rather heaven. Hebrews 11 Verses 8 through 10 says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. That land promise finds its fulfillment in the new heavens and the new earth. The great nation certainly was Old Testament Israel, that nation that's promised to Abraham, but the New Testament sees it as fulfilled in the church, Galatians 6, 15 and 16. Paul says, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Paul is identifying the Israel of God as the new covenant people of God, as the church. Lastly, God has blessed all the nations, people like you and I, people who very likely are not from Abraham's earthly family, but nonetheless profess faith in Christ. We are Abraham's children, Galatians 3, 6 through 9. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is uh, those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now, at this point, many of you are wondering if he has lost his place. What does this have to do with the doctrine of the Trinity? Well, I'm still speaking of monotheism. The eternal God who revealed himself in time and space history breaks into a fallen creation with a message. For our purposes today, I want you to see that the one God that called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees revealed himself to his people for all ages as the Redeemer who provides a land, a nation, and a blessing to all humanity. As New Covenant believers, we see the fulfillment of these Abrahamic promises in the new heavens, the new earth, a holy nation, and uh, a blessed humanity that's composed of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Yet, of course, this discussion of the one God must incorporate the Trinity because the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant come to us from the Father who predestines a people to be his own. He places his love on his people. He sends his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, and he sends his Spirit into our hearts to make us alive and respond. Each person of the Godhead performs a function to enable Abraham and people like us to come to faith to receive the forgiveness of the Son and the love of the Father. Now it's important. Sometimes when we study the doctrine of the Trinity, this can be kind of dry. And, uh, you know, as selfish humans, we always like to know what's in it for me, <laughs> right? What's in it for you? 
The doctrine of the Trinity, what's in it for you is a redemption that matters, a redeemer who redeems, a God who actually cares and executes his plan. All of the stuff that we're going to talk into the catechism about how God executes his decrees means nothing if we don't have a functioning Godhead as scripture reveals. So this is anything but dry stuff. Your salvation depends on it. Later on, when the Athanasian Creed, which is an important creed, although it's not an ecumenical creed, when it says this is the Catholic faith, unless you believe it, you're not a, you're not a Christian, they're not overstating it. It's not just politics being stated. You know, well, this is the position we came to in the empire. No, no, your salvation rests on this. Getting Jesus right is everything. And maybe we could just stop right there. Getting Jesus right is everything. So we're going to focus on the nature of God, as we often do when we study the Trinity. But we need to remember that it's that God who saves sinners like us. It's that promise from the one God who's revealed himself to Abraham that only comes from the one God of the Bible. So we've looked at the idea that God is one, right? The Shema. And certainly there's loads of other passages we could look at. But then the Catechism says not only that he's uh, the one only, or not only the one, but the only. And let's, you know, clarify this. There's, there's no other one. There's no demigods. There's no lesser gods. There's no after-the-fact created gods, as would be the case with Arius, right? Arius would be comfortable saying things like he's a god. He's really amazing, but he's not the big cheese, right? Isaiah 43.10, and for you guys... Just sort of, uh, I posted most of the Bible verses, then I ran out of time. Um, Isaiah 43.10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant, whom I've chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. Right? It's almost as though Isaiah knew that uh, Arius was coming, Right? Uh, God alone is Lord. Not only is he the one God, he's the one God who doesn't create another God, right? Uh, there's no gods before him, there's no gods after him. So that's sort of buttressing this idea that he's the only one true God. So th th thus far we've seen that the creating, sustaining, and redeeming and consummating God of the Bible is one and only, okay? One and only. Now let's see that he is true and living, as the Catechism says. There's but one only, the living and the true God. Now, first we can look at true God. You guys know that passage in 1 Corinthians 8, 8-4. This is the Apostle Paul says it's related to that whole issue of uh, food sacrifice to idols, right? Paul says, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no existence no real existence, and that there's no God but one. So God isn't fake, right? God exists. There's ontological reality to God. Other things we might call God, but they're just words, right? And Paul's whole issue in 1 Corinthians 8, of course, is what do you do with kind of like Abraham when you've got a pagan population that leaves Ur of the Chaldees, as it were, that leaves their paganism, and they find their new reality in Christ, well, you have a lot of baggage, right? And if you were going through the meat market in the Apostle Paul's days and you happened to be a pagan that had act, offered sacrifices to this, that, or the other god, 
you might walk by and that might remind you of your old way of life. I remember when I worshiped. I remember when I prayed to. I remember I this, that, and the other in relation to that God. And you might be tempted to backslide. You might be tempted to say, oh, I can't eat that. It might make me sin because of all of my baggage. But Paul says, look, guys, only God exists. If that was sacrificed to God X and your conscience is cool and it's on sale, buy that stuff. Right? Gobble that meat up is Paul's argument. On the other hand, Paul says, if you're not ready for that, if that will really violate your conscience, if you think back to the orgies and the drunkenness and whatever it is that you did in your pagan worship associated with that, it's a good idea for you to stay away from that. That's sin for you, okay? Objectively, it's not, because let me tell you, there is no God except the one God who exists eternally in three persons. Uh, but that's sort of the, the issue with the 1 Corinthians 8 passage. Um, I've lost my place. So the Bible is replete with this idea of God is the one true God who really exists, okay? And we see that all throughout the Old Testament. There's this uh, category called theomachy, right? Theos is God and machi is like fighting, right? Yahweh versus the gods, right? It's a theme all through the Old Testament. And this is really establishing that God, he is the one, he is the only, and he's the true God. And so we see God go into Egypt, right? And we see all through the plagues, right? All through the 10 plagues, what is God doing? He is picking off each of the Egyptian deities and he is showing they're not God, I am, right? We wanna talk about superiority complex, God's got it because he is the one only and true. I know it's hard for us to think because we think as people, of course, and we're like, what makes them so special? They're just like me. There's no category for anything else than God to say, what makes him so special? He's, no, you're not like him, right? And God goes out of his way to show your gods are idols. They are fake. There's no reality to them. And so, of course, we see that through all of the 10 plagues. Uh, one of my favorite is uh, Yahweh versus Dagon, right? Uh, so, you know, you got ding, 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 you know, go with the battle of the gods. And, uh, you know, we have uh, Jonah, of course, you know, he's running away from God and uh, he ends up getting swallowed by a fish, right? Now, for the, uh, the Ninevites, their, their god was Dagon. Dagon was a god represented by a fish, right? And so, of course, what happens with Jonah Jonah comes cruising up with this message of repentance that he's really hesitant to do, probably because he has some probably racist and definitely just, he does not like the, uh, the Ninevites. Um, he gets barfed up onto the, the coast, right? And so, you know, these Ninevites see this dude, you know, surf out of a fish, right? Which is their deity. And he comes out victorious over this fish and his words are, in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. You need to repent. And what does the text say? It happens. These people repent. Now, the text doesn't say it explicitly, but a good chance, hey, the guy that survived and came out of our fish, that doesn't happen, which of course is the point of the Jonah story, right? People don't come crawling out of fishes, right? Don't, don't go doing your research on, you know, some 
I don't know, oxygen stored in a fish's belly, right? Um, it, that's not the point, okay? He's victorious. God is greater than Dagon, right? And then, of course, we see the account of Yahweh versus Baal in the Old Testament, right? We've got that kind of Athanasius contramundum situation, but instead it's, you know, uh, Elijah contramundum. And he's really feeling that, right? Elijah's, you know, uh, Lord, you know, I'm, al I'm all alone here. Woe is me. And, and God tells him, I've still reserved 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Just hold on, dude. The gates of hell will not overcome the church. Um, so, you know, with the Baal account is we have, okay, hey, go ahead and you know, we're going to have an offering, and why don't you dump some water on it, and, you know, whoever, whichever God brings fire, I'm getting ahead of myself, whichever God brings fire is the true God, right? And uh, Elijah really gets bold with his taunts. Hey, guys, I see you're cutting yourself and getting all ecstatic here. Maybe your God's using the restroom, right? Maybe he's too busy, right? And then, of course, Elijah you know, he has his guys go and, you know, get a bunch of buckets of water and pour it on the altar and boom, fire comes down from heaven. This idea of Theomach, it's all over. It's God showing that he's God and nobody else is, okay? Not only is he the uh, only and the one and the, the true God, but he's the living God, okay? Jeremiah 10.10. 10. But the Lord is the true God. He's the living God and the everlasting king. The earth quakes at his wrath, and the nations cannot endure his indignation. That living God, he's the living God that also makes us to live as we have faith in Christ. That one God that Abraham believed in is your God as you come to him in faith. Remember, for example, in uh, Mark 12, we have that uh, ridiculous story where the, the Sadducees come to Jesus with this story of, uh, you know, a brother who mar gets married and doesn't have any kids, and there's that obligation in Israelite culture that if your brother marries and doesn't have kids, you need to step in as the pinch hitter. And there's like, it's like seven deep, the bench for this one, right? And so it ends up like seventh brother ends up marrying this girl, still no kids. And the question, of course, they have is, uh, you know, hey, who's, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? Now, mind you, the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection, right? These guys are there for a glorious waste of time with a fascinatingly stupid question. I mean, it's kind of fun, you know. Uh, I, I imagine they were sitting around a table drinking a lot or something when they made this story. Um, but they're really, really pushing Jesus here. And Jesus' response, of course, is, I'm the God. You, know, you guys are so wrong because you don't know the scriptures, right? What does God say? I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living, right? He's the God of the living. Now, I just want to throw out for you guys that you can be so bold. Now, obviously, we could add to this scripturally. God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But by faith in Christ, you can add your name to that list, okay? God says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when you were baptized, what was placed on you? The name of God, okay? The God and Father, 
don't know of Mark, okay? You feel warm and special, Mark? Sorry. But no, I mean, you could pen your name in there. You could pen your name in there. Well, that's establishing this idea that there is one God. He's only, he's alone. He's living and he's true. Um, now, question six of the catechism reads thus, and please respond. How many persons are there in the Godhead? There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Now, we need to stop and just have some genuine appreciation. Uh, you know, some of the fine distinctions in reading Scripture and struggling with Scripture to come to that easy conclusion that we all believe uh, it took a lot of work, okay? And sometimes as Christians, we like to think, well, it's just me and my Bible in my prayer closet, and I came to all these conclusions. And you very likely did, but also there's a whole cloud of witnesses of Christians that have been reading and interpreting and struggling. And so, you know, we need to realize we're standing on the, the shoulders of giants like Athanasius as we come out and easily say these things. Now, my argument here, of course, is that this is not... Uh, Athanasius is a heroic guy, and we need to be like him in that we need to stand against the world. Incidentally, as Athanasius is standing against the world, he's also standing against a good chunk of the church. And I think that's something that we need to take into account sometimes, uh, that the church, Jesus tells the world's going to hate us, but sometimes the world creeps into the church, and they're going to hate you too, and that should be expected. But our, our argument here is primarily exegetical. That is, first and foremost, it's about what does Scripture say. But you want to know what? That's the same question that uh, Athanasius was asking. So, question six. There's three persons in the Godhead, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three are one God, same in substance, equal in power and glory. So, what's the Trinity? Uh, sort of quick and easy definition we get from G.I. Williamson. Some of you guys recognize him from the Shorter Catechism uh, commentary. Williamson says this, there's one God, the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, and each of these three persons is distinct from the others. So let's jump into this, Matthew 6, 9, uh, the Father is God. Jesus, of course, this is the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, certainly it's true that within Judaism, the idea of God as Father was present, it kind of existed, but it was sort of a generative Father, like He created you and therefore He's His Father, your Father. Jesus is saying, no, 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 you call Him Papa, Daddy, this intimate relationship, you know, and all the more when we think about, like, think about Jews in the Tetragrammaton, right, the four-letter representation of God's name, they're, they're terrified to say, you know, uh, however we pronounce that, uh, there's no vowels, so good luck. But um, the, uh, they're terrified to say that, so terrified that every time they see this in the text, they're going to say Adonai, which is Lord, or maybe Hashem, the name, right? So they're terrified of that. Jesus says, you call that God intimately your Father, right? So certainly there's that conception. Ephesians 4, 6 says, there's one God and Father of all who's over all and through all and in all. Scripture, of course, teaches us, and by the way, that's the, the least controversial point when we talk about Trinitarianism. Everybody agrees the Father's God. Um, 
The son is God, though, and this is the point of big controversy when we hit Athanasius' day. Uh, John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay, we could spend a whole class just on that. Um, it's fascinating. As you look down through John 1, you get to John 1.14, and it says, you know, uh, and the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And whatever that flesh is, we understand in the Gospel of John, it's talking about Jesus, right? So that infleshed Word in the beginning was, that infleshed Word was with God in the beginning, and that infleshed Word, John 1.1, 1, 1, was God, right? Now, Athanasius and people like him will try to stumble through some bad Greek and say, well, you know, actually he's a God. There's not an, an article, it's an anarthrous noun. It, it doesn't count, you need to have the in front of it. Um, but you know, in like almost all cases, that's just not the case. Um, so I'm not gonna pretend I remember Greek that I should. Cool, John 1.1. 1, 1. Uh, you know, John 20, 28, Thomas answers him, my Lord and my God. This is a, a great proof text in support of the deity of Christ. Here we have Jesus, by all accounts, a, a good rabbi, right? Regardless of whether you believe he's the son of God, whether he's God himself, uh, receiving Thomas saying, my Lord and my God. Now, I think Thomas means exactly what he said. Jesus, you front and center in front of me, holes in the ribs, whole nine yards, right? You are my Lord and my God. Now, some will say, well, Thomas was excited, and he spoke, you know, the way people might speak today when you hit your hand with a hammer. Oh, my God, right? Um, no, he's not cursing. He's not excited. He's referring to the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? And if Thomas is merely taking the name of the Lord his God in vain, I would expect a good rabbi to call him out on that, right? Jesus doesn't. Jesus doesn't. Okay, last, of course, is the argument that the Spirit is God. Uh, the classic text here is Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. You guys remember that account. That's the account where uh, the church is growing, the gospel's being preached, people are coming to Christ in repentance and faith, and people out of, you know, the overflowing of gratitude in their hearts are selling stuff and bringing the money to the apostles, and they're caring for the poor, and it's this wonderful example of Christian communism, supposedly. That's what you'll hear. Uh, but no, it isn't, because communism is always achieved by power of the state. And these are people with new hearts that are coming and saying, Lord, so much has been given to me, what can I give? Okay. Now, in those contexts, is the flesh hiding? <laughs> no, the flesh is there. What we have is, wow, these guys sold all their property. They sold their apartment complex, and they brought the money, and they gave it to the apostles for the good of the diaconate. Wow. Hey, honey, see how people are kind of stoked about them? Let's go sell our properties, and we'll give 80%, but we're just going to that's everything. We're just going to let that slip. Yeah, this is everything, right? So that you can glorify us. You can think we're great, right? So the issue isn't the property. Uh, by the way, it needs to be robust. As people with property, we need to use it for the glory of God, right? At the end of the day, we serve the Lord Christ, not capitalism, okay? Uh, enough of that. We could get into that. But um, that wasn't an argument for communism, just so you know. 
But it is an argument for you to realize that God is greater than your money. So the Spirit's God, Acts 5, 3 through 4. Peter comes along and says, Ananias, why has Satan so filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after you sold it, wasn't it still at your disposal? Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but you've lied to God. So the issue here is, hey, dude, it's your property. You can do what you want with it. But you lied to us about how much you gave. And that's so that you can gain glory. And glory alone shall be given to God. You need to realize that you're expendable, that you're a servant, that uh, you are not going to get that kind of glory, not through lying. So you've lied to the Holy Spirit. You've lied to God. Paul clearly puts, uh, I'm sorry, Peter clearly puts uh, you know, the Spirit as God. 1 Corinthians 2.10 says this, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Right? I don't know about you, but in order for you to search the depths of you, you need to be part of you. Right? So the Spirit, of course, plumbed the depths of God because the Spirit is God. Matthew 12.31, Jesus says, Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. What on earth is that? This unforgivable sin, right? And blasphemy against the Spirit? Somehow we're going to forgive you about uh, the, all kinds of things in terms of perhaps other persons of the Trinity, but don't blaspheme the Spirit, right? Now, personally, uh, my, my read on this text is, it's talking about attributing the works of God to the works of Satan. Uh, what is this? It's in Matthew. I think it was in Mark. It, it deals with the issue of, uh, you know, claiming that the works of Christ are done in the name of Beelzebul, right? The works of Satan. I think that's what it's about. But the issue here is, you know, why is such a high uh, priority placed on uh, blaspheming the spirits? Because the spirit is, is God. John 6, 63 it's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Uh, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Okay. As we read, uh, you know, in the opening chapters of Genesis, we've got the, the Spirit hovering over the waters. We know that that's God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? So the Spirit is God. Now, there's certainly counter-arguments we could get into here. But uh, there's not a lot of time. Uh, but here's a question. Is this rational? People will laugh at you because you believe this. Three persons cannot be one being. One being cannot be three persons, right? They say it's not rational and it's not reasonable. And of course, well, there's this thing, right? We've already studied in the Catechism that God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. Well, we're finite. We're subject to time. And we're very malleable, right? We are the finite trying to comprehend the infinite. And forbidding a breakthrough revelation from God, we won't get it. So don't be surprised when people say that it's irrational. Well, it cannot be replicated in the laboratory. Well, hey, Isaiah 43.10 just said that. Before me, no God was made, nor will be there one after. And you're not going to cook one up. In your mind, you might. But we've already seen God always goes through and crushes our idols. He's a bull in a china closet when it comes to our idols. It does need to be said, though, that the Trinity is a mystery beyond our comprehension. Okay? Uh, 
it, it's, you know, the literature on the Holy Trinity, again, this, we have, this is the, the low end of the deeping pool. And to be fully honest, every time I teach this, I think I really need to go to school on the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. It is so awe-inspiring. Um, but, yeah, certainly the Trinity is a mystery. But it's a mystery that we need to remember that God is infinite and eternal and changeable. We aren't. We must remember that we can't understand God completely. We must realize that the secret things belong to the Lord, but those things he has revealed do belong to us. And beloved, what I've shared with you today certainly is revealed. It does belong to you. The triune God is your God by faith and by baptism. In order to understand God rationally, however, there's been plenty of uh, approaches. And so the first one, of course, we already talked about Arius, right? Uh, today, there's still Arius, Arians among us, right? The Jehovah's Witnesses. They'll come up to you and they'll say, hey, this whole doctrine of the Trinity was cooked up by Constantine and it's a bunch of paganism and uh, this, that, and the other. And, you know, go back and look at Athanasius's reading, right? Uh, he's interacting with the text and he actually read Greek a whole lot better than I ever will. Um, oh, and anybody in the Watchtower for that matter, too. Um, yeah. Jehovah's Witnesses, they believe there's one God, Jesus is a creature, the Spirit's a power. And, you know, Arius was pretty much the same mold. Modalism, that's the idea that the one eternally existent God exists as like Clark Kent and Superman, right? You've got Clark Kent's always Clark Kent, Superman's always Clark Kent. He's always the same stuff, right? But he goes into the telephone booth and he pops out as Superman. Right? He comes to us in different modes of existence, and the modalists would argue that he comes to you in the person of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Maybe not person, but in that mode, in that appearance. Uh, then, of course, there's outright tritheism, and that's what we're accused of, especially by strict monotheists like Muslims and Jews. Hey, you have introduced new gods in here. And, you know, our argument is, well, when something has the attributes of God, and we all agree there's one God, that kind of buttresses the idea of the triunity of God, okay? Now, all these ideas about God are unbiblical and deny God the glory that's due to him. We need to be very careful to only say what Scripture says and not to speculate. So, this leads us to the question of, does this really matter? Can't we all just get along, right? That was the argument Arius was making. And that's often the arguments heretics make, right? Hey, can't we all just get along? And we see that, you know, in the history of the church, denominations, you know. Athanasius, a lot of his dilemma wasn't so much just against the world. It was also against the world that infiltrated the church. Can't we just fellowship with anyone who loves God, who studies the Bible and believes in Jesus? Does it really matter is the kind of question we're often faced with. We share the same morality, right? Well... It does, and Jesus tells us it does. John 8, 24, Jesus says, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. This is an issue with Jesus. In the Gospel of John, in a very clear way, you know, scholars will say it's the high Christology of John, yada, yada, but... um. In, in John's gospel, Jesus is very explicitly saying the eternal, son, the eternal God that appeared to Moses and gave his covenant name 
you know, Jehovah, uh, I'm that guy, right? And we look in this passage, John 8, 58, for example, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, right? And what do the Jews do? You know, maybe we should, you know, maybe we should counsel this guy. The Jews did the right thing. They totally did the right thing. Pick up stones and stone that guy. Now, they did the wrong thing because they failed to realize that this guy has the ontological gas in the tank to make good on what he's promising. Jesus is the eternal God, right? And Jesus says, unless you believe that I am he, that one that appeared before Moses, right? Uh, that one that pre-exists before Abraham, you will die in your sins. So friends, this is not like, well, you know, you think this is Jesus, I think that of Jesus. This is my Jesus, this is your Jesus. We need to get Jesus right. We need to get Jesus right. Now, all of these other views that I've described concerning how we view Jesus, they all want to take the deity out of his tank, as it were. They, they don't want a Jesus who is God of God, light of light, very God of very God. Now, there's a couple problems with that. Uh, in terms of your morality, what is that telling you? Your moral life, and this is my stabbing to make this about ethics, I didn't have time to think it through. But in terms of your morality, if Jesus is a wonderful Anthony Robbins, you know Anthony Robbins, right? Neat guy, firewalks, all that stuff, positive thinking, some of which is useful, a lot of which is garbage. Is Jesus another Anthony Robbins who's along next to you to coach you through, right? to push through to the next level. You can go ahead and obey this Father God, right? Um, if that's all Jesus is, is he really a savior? This touches at the nature of what does Christ accomplish as a savior? And going back to Anselm, if he's not, you know, the big question is why is he the God-man? Anselm's answer in a heartbeat is he's the God-man because a God is necessary to take the price for the eternal punishment of hell for sinners. And you got to be an eternal being to pull that off. Jesus is that kind of Savior. Let's close in prayer. Father, how we give thanks for Christ and how important it is for us to see him on his terms. We pray, Father, that you would remove from our eyes the blinders. Help us to love you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Rejoice in the wondrous salvation you've brought for us. Help us to be faithful and true to any man who has an answer for the hope that we have that's in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.